Hello, everyone. How are you? Welcome to episode 10 of season two of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. One of the things I love about having this podcast is getting to invite people whose work I've admired and fangirled from afar to be a guest on Spilling Chai. So of course I would take this opportunity to reach out to a woman who proudly calls herself an anarchist and a feminist. I am talking about writer and author Mona El-Tahawe. El-Tahawe is an award-winning columnist and international public speaker on global feminism, Arab and Muslim issues, and more. She became a correspondent for Reuters in 1993, first in Cairo and then Jerusalem, and she has also reported from the Middle East for The Guardian newspaper. Altahawe has spent the past decade writing about politics and feminism for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Christian Science Monitor, and The International Herald Tribune, amongst many other outlets. She is the author of two books, Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution, and The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. And she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Mona. So for me, your work first kind of came into, and correct me if I'm wrong, came into the focus of the international media and the U.S. media, you know, in 2011 during the Arab Spring, which really set off in Egypt. Um, You were arrested, assaulted. I believe your hand and wrist were broken. Talk to me about that experience, because I just remember learning about you, uh, immediately falling in love with your amazingness and and your kind of badassery. And then being terrified that they were going to kill you, that you were going to be killed. Well, thank you, first of all, for your kind words. I'm delighted to be with you. And I'm going to begin everything with what I call my declaration of faith, which is fuck the patriarchy. And um, going back to 2011, um, you know, I began that year basically living in TV and radio studios where I was doing commentary on the Egyptian revolution. And then at the end of that year, and I I consider that entire year kind of like a revolutionary year for Egypt. I was in New York when the 18 days that people usually call the days of the the Egyptian revolution. I was in New York doing all this media in support of the revolution. And then at the end of the year in November, I was in Cairo. And it was then that I was arrested. I was abducted, basically. I was abducted and held incommunicado by the interior ministry and then military intelligence. And before they took me in, riot police beat me and broke my left arm and my right hand. And then they sexually assaulted me and took me to their supervising officer who threatened to have me gang raped by a group of his men. So that all happened before I was taken in and I was held for about 12 hours. And during my time with, uh, while military intelligence was holding me, they blindfolded me and interrogated me, you know, with, I wasn't given any medical care. So those were 12 hours where I, you know, my family basically thought I was dead. Nobody knew where I was. I did manage to send out a tweet three hours into my detention because uh, an activist had come in to the interior ministry. And I asked him if I could use his phone to just send out a message essentially saying, um, beaten, arrested, interior ministry. And, and that was it. That's all that people heard from me. But my family didn't know about this tweet. And so, you know, they, they spent all the time that I was in detention, not really knowing what had happened to me. So that all was horrific. But I, I have to say, Anushe, that as horrific as it was, I recognize fully that if it wasn't for the fact that I'm 
famous, well-known, you know, had, had been on media all over the world, I probably would be dead and I probably would have been gang raped and much worse would have happened to me. And I recognize that all of that stuff, my platform, my fame, all of that saved me because within, I found out after I was released finally, and I went to the hospital and I got treatment and both my arms were put in casts. I found out that within 15 minutes of that tweet going out saying that I was in the interior ministry, hashtag free Mona was trending around the world. So I'm very, very lucky. Had I been an anonymous working class Egyptian woman, I probably would be dead. But here I am speaking with you. Oh my goodness. I remember that. I remember your tweet. I, I remember that so much. Oh my goodness. Yes. And you're right. You're right. So I was going through your website and everything. I subscribed to your newsletter. Thank you. <laughs> I was going through it, you know, just from a business perspective, I was like, you have, how did you figure out how to be independent and monetize your work so well on your own terms? What would your advice be to young writers, especially young feminist writers out there? I mean, now I think things are so much better, but I remember when I started in 2009, like the idea really was that writing online was for free. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so I was a news reporter before I moved to the U I moved to the US in 2000. And the, the 10 years before that, I was a news reporter in Egypt and I covered the region, mostly for Reuters news agency. I was a Reuters correspondent in Cairo and then a Reuters correspondent in Jerusalem. So I come from a news reporting background. And then when I moved to the US in 2000, I really did not want to do news reporting in the US. I, I just, I couldn't stomach the idea of doing this very, very localized news reporting, which back then for me was not the kind of news reporting that I was, uh, that, that thrilled me, which was the news reporting that I did in Egypt and across the region. And so I started doing, I, I, I moved, I kind of like changed everything and became an opinion writer. So as soon as I, very soon after I arrived in the US, I just, I just kind of began this process of uh, metamorphosis, if you like, you know, just kind of shedding an old skin and taking on a new one. Because, you know, I moved to the US because I was married. It was a fucking disaster. I should never have married this man I married. It was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. And I left him after two years. I would never have come to the US if it wasn't for this fucking disaster of a marriage. But I tell you one thing that I remember him saying to me that I will remember, and it's the only thing that he said to me that I remember or want to remember, and that it's, if you can't find the job you want, create it. And so I just, I began to create what I wanted to do, which is I wanted to be an opinion writer and I wanted to be a public speaker. And I did all those things, but my biggest frustration with the opinion writing and my opinion writing, you know, has appeared in the Washington Post and the New York Times, in the Guardian, all of that. But it was always on their terms and their terms was they gave me this box or platform or whatever you want to call it, as long as it was what they wanted me to write about, which was the Middle East, Egypt, Islam, and that was basically it. And I changed the focus of what I wanted to write. You know, after a while, I didn't want to write about Egypt anymore. I didn't want to write about Islam anymore. I wanted to write about everything. And we, especially as women of color, are not supposed to write about everything. We're supposed to be good girls that stay in the corner and just speak when we're asked to speak. And I was like, fuck that shit. I'm going to speak when I want to speak. So I've spent the past 20 years basically finding out ways to speak when I want to speak. And then this pandemic happened. And I just thought, wow, this, you know, everything that came before is going to change. 
And I just spent all this time thinking, okay, I, I, there's so much I want to say. And if I don't say it now, when, so that time in Egypt that you, the, the first thing you asked me about 2011, that was a real before and after moment for me that I feel the pandemic has been because that in 2011, when they almost killed me, I survived that and I thought, okay, what are all the things that I didn't say before that I should say now because they could have killed me? And I had that moment when the pandemic started. I was like, okay, this is another moment now where there were all these things I want to say and I haven't had the platform to say them. So what am I going to do now? So I created the platform. Luckily, I didn't have to create Patreon or Substack because they're both there. And, you know, the people who created them do get a, a commission, quote unquote, they do get a percentage but that was a platform where I basically kind of stepped in and said, okay, this is where I can do what I want. So I launched the Patreon and then I launched my feminist giant newsletter on Substack. And through those two platforms, I now write what I want, when I want, about what I want. And I'm like, fucking finally. Oh, <laughs> uh, cause you know, when I was going through your website, I was just like, oh man, I am so like, I was kind of like studying it. And then I was so envious of you. I was like, oh, this is what I want. Oh, that's so smart. And then I'm like, I feel like young women are so much more with it now, you know, like they know from the beginning, you know, what the worth of your work is and to monetize and nothing is for free. I mean, oh, I still have rage <laughs> from over a decade ago, but I love that you did that. So just bravo. And you know what? I feel like in all women should take a, a business management class. All women should be, it should be like mandatory. I, I hear you, but you know, one of the things that I also wanted to do, Anushay, when I, when I launched all of those things was in recognition of, it, it was kind of like, it was a square that I wanted, a, a circle that I wanted to square, you know, all those cliches that we talk about. Cause well, I'm an anarchist feminist who is moving away from capitalist models as much as possible. And that sounds like antithetical to using Patreon and Substack to make a living, right? But I'm, I'm trying my best to make a living in recognition of these times that we live in, which is, you know, millions of people have been made unemployed. Millions of people are under threat of eviction. And I want my work to be accessible to millions of people. So I was like, how am I going to do this? So I said very honestly in my Patreon, like what about me? And then also, or the kind of like the about me section and also in the about me section in my, my newsletter, Feminist Giant Newsletter, I said, look, I'm an anarchist feminist. And one of the oppressions of patriarchy that I oppose is capitalism. So how am I going to do this? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make my newsletter free so that everyone can have access to it. But if you can pay, pay. Because what I want to do here is share resources. And one of the resources that we can share is knowledge. And another resource that we can share for those who have it is money. Because we live in a world where we're not post-money, we're not post-capitalist, but I'm trying to create a just world through that world of my writing that I have. So yeah, I, I agree with you. We need to be more business savvy, but I want to make that savviness for me, a savviness that recognizes um, a more just world of uh, a just way of being in this world that honors my anarchist feminist principles. And, and I'm doing it. And, and I'm so grateful and so fucking ecstatic that there are people out there who are supporting that because they recognize that now is the time to do that because there is no going back to what came before this pandemic. That normal is done for fuck normal. And in order to move forward, we have to create that world that we are moving towards. And that's sincerely what I'm trying to do with my writing and the models that I've used 
to send my writing out into the world. Well, you have to eat and you have to pay your bills. Like, I love that you were like, hello, welcome. (laughs) Exactly. I love it. Okay. So my next question is Kamala Harris is the first female vice president. What does her, her win mean to you as a woman of color? So look, um, you know, I was editing the Global Roundup this morning, which which I publish five days a week, and it's compiled and written by five interns. All of them, except for one, uh, are women of color. And today's intern, Miriam Buttle, included uh, Kamala um, Harris's uh, being the vice president-elect, you know, and how excited she was that uh, a black woman, an Asian woman, you know, a woman of color historic in so many ways. And while I share that enthusiasm, I also have to counter, maybe not counter, maybe, but also include, because this is something that I did include in Miriam's compilation. As a woman of color and as a feminist, I'm especially as a feminist who is a woman of color and an anarchist feminist, I insist that we complicate moments where we see women step into places that we've not seen them before. Because I always say that, look, I don't support a woman simply for being a woman. I support women who are destroying patriarchy. I support women who go out there and, yes, accept those positions that we have been kept out of before while destroying patriarchy and while ensuring that those positions expand to make room for more women who have been kept out of those positions. So while I recognize the importance of Kamala Harris because of all those historic firsts, a first for black women, a, fir- a first for women of uh, Asian descent, South Asian descent, women of color generally. I also have to include that we have to critique Pamela Harris for me as a leftist and as a progressive and as that anarchist feminist, because she has described herself as the top, a top cop. She does have a history that sex workers and trans people have been very critical of. And I'm doing that not to ruin this moment of celebration, I'm doing that in recognition of this moment of celebration. Because in the same way that when Donald Trump nominated successfully Gina Haspel to be the first woman heading the CIA, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying this is not a feminist victory. I don't support a woman torturing just because a man can torture. In the same way that Donald Trump, again, successfully nominated Amy Coney Barrett to be a Supreme Court justice, I wrote an essay saying this is not a feminist victory because this is a woman who is a five-star general of the patriarchy, not just a foot soldier of the patriarchy. Also, every woman candidate, what's that quote? Not every woman candidate is a woman's candidate. Right. And the same with Hillary Clinton, you know, when she was running for president. So what I'm saying is I insist on on saying, yes, I recognize the, the historical moment that we are going through right now. But I also recognize as an anarchist feminist of color that Kamala Harris comes with a history that, and, and positions that I do not support. You know, being a prosecutor, being someone who the trans and sex worker communities have also criticized in the past. So I welcome the feedback and the, and, and, and the you know, all of the essays that black feminists are going to write about her because I recognize that this is a moment where black feminists and feminists of South Asian descent, specifically Indian descent, are going to come forward and and embrace her, you know? But I also welcome the necessary complication in the ways that we talk about Kamala Harris because we have to fight for that better world. And that better world is not helped by saying, 
oh, because she's a woman, I fully support her. Or because she's a woman of color, I fully support her. Or because she's a black woman, I fully support her. No, I insist on complicating that. I love that. A necessary conversation. So you wrote, I am a feminist and an anarchist. I consider my writing a form of direct action, part education, part preparation for the social change we need as we create the world we want. First of all, I love that so much. Tell me, explain this. Tell me what you mean when you, when you write this. What are you trying to say? Well, you know, as anarchists, we usually say that the way to bring about change in the world is something that is much bigger and doesn't fully depend on electoral politics. So this is a moment to say that because, you know, we've just ended, you know, this, this dance that we do in the United States every four years, you know, for the presidential elections that we do every two years for the midterms and every six years, you know, for the Senate. And while electoral politics are important because, you know, laws are made there and executive decisions are made there, and we've seen the nightmares and horrors of this fascist fuck called Donald Trump, we also recognize horrors that have preceded him, both Democrat and Republican presidents. But elections are not the only way that we bring about change in the world. And as anarchists, we talk about direct action. Direct action can take many forms. Usually the form that people think of is protest or boycotts or things that happen you know, on the street. Direct action for me is also writing because the way that I contribute to creating that world that I want as the anarchist feminist is my writing. And I think specifically because I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of this moment in Spanish history during the Civil War, in the run-up to the Civil War, when anarchists in Spain were a, a force to be reckoned with, when anarchists in Catalonia, especially for two years, uh, ran this kind of anarchist heaven before the, the, they lost the civil war, basically the anarchists and the socialists. And when the more I read about the, the, the women in the anarchist movement in Spain, the, the more I read about anarchists generally, the more I recognize that what we can learn from that moment is what I'm trying to do now, which is direct action through education, through writing. So one of the things they used to do back then is they used to use shop uh, these kind of small in New York, New York City would call them bodegas, but you know, kind of like small grocery stores that they would open to everyone for social justice education, where you could go in and borrow books or sit in to a reading or sit in to a discussion about art or sit in for a discussion about the, the importance of feminism, the revolution, workers' rights, all of that. So any kind of discussion that usually is you know, in a capitalist model, open to, to the elites, open to people with money where you, 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 know, you pay $25 and you go and go to a museum that is not accessible to, to everyone, you know? So that's, this is what I want to do with my writing. Imagine that I'm sitting in one of those shops, those grocery stores, discussing with anyone who wants to come in what we need to do to create the change that will bring about the revolution, that will liberate us from patriarchy and its oppressions. So my writing is that direct action. My writing is the protest, my writing is the boycott, and my writing is the way that I destroy patriarchy. Oh, I love it. Amen. I love this. I mean, you can tell I'm such a fan of your writing. So you wrote, quote, feminism is not about doing what men do or being what men can be. I do not want what men have. I want much more. I love that. I love that so much. I want to get a tattoo of that on my face. <laughs> what does feminism mean to you? How do you define it? So 
So feminism, the textbook definition of feminism is the destruction of patriarchy. Usually you hear feminism is women's equality with men or feminism is equality. I, I want something much more than equality, which is what you were just quoting. I want something much bigger than equality because what I want is freedom. And I say that, I say that I want something more than equality with men because men are not free. I don't want to be equal to someone who is not free. And when you look at men, the, the only men who, who really benefit from the way society is run right now across the world are wealthy, cisgender, able-bodied, heterosexual, conservative men. That's really who benefit from patriarchy. And then the, what, what I need to continue that definition of feminism, because I want feminism is the destruction of patriarchy, because feminism is going to free me because I want something much bigger than equality, because men are not free from patriarchy. The next question then must be, what is patriarchy? And the textbook definition of patriarchy is a system of oppressions that privileges male dominance. But again, which men can experience this privilege of dominance. And it's that man I just said, the wealthy, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, conservative, cisgender man. So when I talk also about patriarchy, I want to break away from that textbook definition. And if usually with, with video, I give people this, I, I want them to imagine an octopus. The analogy that I draw is the octopus and the head of the octopus is patriarchy. And each one of the eight tentacles of the octopus is a form of, are those oppressions that squeeze us all in. And one tentacle is white supremacy. Another tentacle is capitalism. Another is misogyny. Another is homophobia, transphobia, ableism, ageism. Basically, all of those oppressions that together privilege those select few men. And that's why I say, I want something much more than equality. Because if you look at who is squeezed between the tentacles of that octopus, you'll see that the majority of us are, except for this select group of men who aren't. So I want people to imagine this, this octopus because you know when it comes to what we now call liberal feminism or neoliberal feminism or white feminism, they usually just focus on misogyny. And as, as long as like they, they are able to overcome that misogyny, it's like everything is okay. And as long as we can get a few exceptional women to become CEOs or to lean in or to be the head of the CIA or whatever the fuck, that's not enough for me. What I want is the destruction of patriarchy. And we destroy it by cutting off the tentacles of that octopus because around the world, patriarchy is the universal. Because regardless of whether you're in China or Saudi Arabia, or Zimbabwe, or Mexico, regardless of what political system you live in, what religion you do or don't follow, any political system, a constitutional monarchy, or a two-party democracy like the US, patriarchy is that octopus that sits atop of everything. So my feminism is universal, because patriarchy is universal, and my feminism aims to destroy patriarchy. Amen. Okay, last question. So what are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the chai? Well, what I'm working on is, is Feminist Giant because I'm building Feminist Giant into a feminist newsletter that is a must read. I want everyone to read this newsletter. I want everyone, cis as well as trans women, cis as well as trans men, non-binary people, gender diverse people. I want everyone to say, what is Feminist Giant saying about this? And I want people to read my newsletter because every day I want them to recognize that there is feminist resistance 
to global patriarchal fuckery. One of the main reasons that I launched Feminist Giant is because I want people to know that the United States is not the center of the feminist universe. If anything, when we look around at what's been happening in the United States for decades now, feminism has a long way to go. I want feminists in the US to learn from feminists around the world. I want people to read Feminist Giant newsletter as the place to go to learn about feminist resistance to global patriarchy and also to ask what does Feminist Giant say today about Biden-Harris, about Polish feminists and their revolution, about you know X, Y, and Z. And I also want to work, and this is one of the reasons that I launched my Patreon now, so I have the newsletter, but I'm also working on three different books. And they're spilling the chai on various things. One, one book is about anarchist feminists of color around the world. One book is about sex and queerness. And another book is about um, one of my favorite singers in the world, and that is the Egyptian diva, for lack of a better term, Om Kulsum, who I want the entire world to listen to. So I want to write a book about her. Oh, oh my goodness. My best friend is from Egypt. Her name is Shireen Abdelnabi, and she is going to die when she hears that you are working on a book about her. Oh my goodness. That is going to be so amazing. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, Mona, thank you so much. This was an honor and an education. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Anoushe. I look forward to this being live. I will share it on all my platforms gladly. Yes. Thank you so much, Mona. I'll speak to you soon. Have a good one. See you on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much. When I think of the life and work of someone like Mona el it makes me think about how much women still have to fight, literally to this day, for our equal rights rights to our body, our reproduction, our education, and life on our own terms. And it makes me think of how grateful I am to have women like Mona el leading the way for the rest of us. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please subscribe on all major streaming apps. We also just got on YouTube, so if you listen to podcasts on there, check us out on the Spilling Chai channel. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. Chai.